by commitment to Christ. These are projects to do to strengthen this area. Learning to see things from others' point of view. You know what that's called? You know what your kids say if uh, you do not see things from their point of view and you're giving them a decision? They say, Mom and Dad, you are not what? Fair. Fairness is seeing situations from others' points of view. And many times, as a parent, I want to cut my kids off and tell them no. And they say, well, you should at least give me the right to lead, at least ask the thing all the way through before you say no. And if your kid's asked to do something that you cannot do, and then you listen to it all the way through, and then just ponder a little bit, and they give them an answer, they'll think you thought it through. And there's many times I knew as they were talking that we were already committed. And kids hate to be cut off with no's. You know, so be fair. You're committee people. And people working for you, they come and they say, what do you think about, you know, and you're saying, you're kidding. You know, we don't, you know, rant swordfish at, for the clubs, you know, to get people in. We just wouldn't do that. You know, so you, you let them tell it and you, you listen. And so learn to do this. Because, there's, you know, there may be that some people do have ideas that may be better than yours. So do this type of thing. Ready, ad, readily admitting when I'm wrong. Remember, he said, that's very difficult. Listening more and talking less and being more concerned about Christ's reputation, not mine. Some point in time in your Christian life, you will have to give your reputation to God. That's just part of growing. And when you do, you better duck. That can be one of the most struggling, traumatic experiences when you give God your reputation. A friend of mine gave God his reputation. The very next day, he got down, built an altar, and said, God, I'm going to give you my reputation. I am going to be concerned about your reputation, not mine. Pastor at a very influential church on the West Coast. The next day, I got a telephone call. I said, have you read the Seattle Times? He said, no, why? He said, you better. There's an article in there about you, and is it ever terrible? And he looked at it, and it was filled with lies in the religious column. How his church was pushing the sex education program in the public schools. It happened to be his church was taking a stand against it. The guy happened to get it, the story wrong. He got the telephone and started dialing the Los Angeles Times, I mean the Seattle Times, to straighten out the religious editor. And all of a sudden God said, what did you do yesterday? Whose reputation did you give me? Give to me anyway, mine or yours? He said, God, I gave you mine. He handed the phone to God, if you want to straighten it out, you straighten my reputation. And he left it in the Lord's hand. And they got more letters that they printed a front page retraction and he never did a thing. Let me tell you, when you give God your reputation, it's just amazing. And they say, you know what? People just told me about you and you go, what? <laughs> you know, you just, wow, I'm going to get them. Uh, so, humility is building my life around Jesus Christ. Anger. You know, reacting to someone who violates my personal rights. Then I need to list the rights I still tend to be touchy about. And then gratefulness. I don't like gratefulness as well as meekness, because meekness is really a better term there than gratefulness. Uh, meekness is yielding all my personal rights to God and being thankful for each one he, uh, he returns to me as a privilege. Now, when I worry, and I forgot to tell you this, when you worry, worry is an excellent signal, and so is anger. When you get angry, when you get angry, 
what is God doing? He's using that to point out areas of your life you're still holding on to. When you worry, that's God's way of letting you know what? You've picked up a load that's too heavy to carry. Now, let's say we decide I want the piano carried from here over here and the organ from here over here and I ask the dear lady back there to carry it. And she's dumb enough to do it because she wants to please everybody so she grabs a hold of the piano and she goes to pick it up. You know how God lets her know that that load is too heavy for her? She gets a pain in her back. And you know that pain to the physical body is the same thing as worry to my spiritual body. Because worry is God's way of letting me know that I picked up a burden that's too heavy for me to carry and I need help with it. I need to turn it over to him. That's how you know that you're carrying a load that's too big. Worry is when I assume more personal, uh, more personal responsibility for a situation than God attends me to take. That's the way I know. How do I know when I'm assuming more responsibility for something than what I should? Well, when I start to worry. And that's a uh, trigger for me to start praying. So how do I know when to pray? Well, as soon as I begin to sense that I'm getting anxious for something, then God says, see, I'm calling your attention. Now you need to pray. I have a prayer meeting. You get it? See, these things aren't so bad. They can really be a benefit if we use them right. Bitterness. I'm trying to talk with one of our super cock drops, and it's so big it goes from one... Buy smaller ones tomorrow, would you? <laughs> Bitterness. Don't go. Come back, come back. <laughs> Resenting ones who have wronged or offended me. And here, people I will react to. And you know that you can react to people. Um, let's say that uh, you go see somebody and they say, well, I hear you're in spiritual work. Oh, yes. Who do you work for? Child evangelism. You're kidding. You know, when you hear this, you're kidding. Or, oh, you go, oh, boy. And then what happens? You can begin to resent that person because they had some experience somewhere that wasn't good and they've just X'd out the organization and you can begin to resent that person because they X'd out the organization you work for. Do you see? It's not because they've done anything to you, but what? They're not behind what you're doing. You say, well, I know a thing or two about Baptists, I'll tell you about. <laughs> you <know? laughs> but we've got to be careful because we can take resentments in different ways. And then forgiveness is realizing that God is working through the other person's offenses for my benefit. And we looked at some of the benefits. And therefore, ceasing to be resentful towards him. And we said forgiveness is having the same openness towards an individual that you have, that you have after they offended you, the same as you had before. I know I'm not saying it right, but... Forgiveness is having the same openness towards the individual after they offended you as you had before they did. That's real forgiveness. You say, I've forgiven them, but I don't like them. Oh, come on now. Okay, now we go to a new one tonight. This one is a very, very difficult one to talk about. Sensuality. A spirit of sensuality. And it 
comes from a character deficiency of moral impurity. A sensual spirit, a character deficiency of moral impurity. And we want to look at just a whole lot of insights tonight, and I wish we could, I wish we had a lot more time than what we have. But I want to share tremendous insights with you that I think will be helpful, and especially one area of material. And I can't share it like I usually do, but this material, if I could share it with the illustration, is dynamic. It's the most dynamic thing I share anywhere. And wherever we share it, at the school, our high schools, or wherever, tremendous conviction takes place. I shared it in a church one time, and two returning students had come to this church that night. Both fellows did not sleep that night. And they came to me the next day and said, I've got to talk to you. I didn't sleep last night. When I realized the truth of that, Mr. Logan, I am afraid. For the first time in my life, I am fearful for what I've done. And so tonight we want to share this uh, material with you, but we'll just share it in a nutshell, and maybe sometime you will need to share this, because young people and children do not know this truth, and, the re and they don't know this truth. And you know what people feel? They feel that grace is sin without consequences. They believe that grace is sin without consequences. That is a lie from the pit. That is a lie from the pit. And I've got illustrations from Calvary Bible College. I could keep you here all night long, sitting on the edge of your seat, and weeping over what some of those kids are reaping in their lives even now. For what they did in sin. God can always forgive the sin. But he cannot always what? change the consequences. And you know, the greatest consequences of sin is the scars of memory. The scars of memory. There are people who would give anything if they could what? Forget. What do you do that someone that comes to you and says, I cannot stand my memory when I look back at the things that I've done, the people that I've hurt, the baby that I murdered, how can I handle this now? And you know what we have them do? We have them every time that the scars of memory begin to get a hold of them to use that as a time to recommit their life to Jesus Christ and say, God, I want to thank you for reminding me what my life was like when I was running it myself. Lord, let me live draw a little closer to you. I don't ever want to run my life again because I made a big mess. Turn to Hebrews 13 or Hebrews somewhere 12. i switch this thing over. It gets hot. <laughs> Really does. I let it sit there for a while and it really is powerful. If I get a hole in my cheek, I'm a sewer. <laughs> well, I gotta tell you this while I'm eating this thing. We had a lady in our church and she always liked to do innovative things with uh, the little teeny ones. You know, child evangelism doesn't hit the little ones, but I'll tell you the fun ones are to teach those little bumps on the logs. You know, the tiny ones that can't come to good news clubs because they disrupt too much. They're fun ones. 
And so she had these little kids, and they were doing their verse, you know, Jesus loves me, or Jesus wept, or, you know, one of those big, long ones. And, and uh, she came to this little boy, and he said, I won't tell you. You know, and for three weeks, he wouldn't tell her. And then one week, he said, Jesus wept. And so she gave him the lifesaver. And she said, Jeff, did you know the verse the last three weeks? Yep. Why don't you tell me? I didn't like the flavor. <laughs> it was a green one. He had to eat it. See, if he said the verse, I wouldn't say the verse. He wasn't going to eat one of the green ones. He didn't like it. <laughs> Isn't that cute? <laughs> We're talking about frame of reference. The same teacher had a little girl, and she came home. And I always, always ask kids what they learned. What did you learn today? She says, oh, we studied about the man that got hit by the car. I said, what? She said, we studied about the man that got hit by the car. And I said, oh, no. I said, did Mrs. Elsie's somebody get hit by her husband drove a truck? Did he get hit by a car? And she said, yep. I said, one of her relatives? No, the, the man in the Bible got hit by the car. I said, what man in the Bible got hit by the car? So the man by the side of the road. I said, he didn't get hit by a car. He did, too. Our teacher told me. So we had to call a teacher on the phone, because if her teacher told her he got hit by a car, he got hit by a car. But, you know, she never told him why, or it didn't click with Terry, why he was laying by the side of the road. And anybody laid by the side of the road, I banged up like that, I had to be hit by the car. <laughs> you, know? you know, I tell you, you just got to clarify, you clarify, clarify, clarify with these little kids. <laughs> Maybe run over with a chariot, but never hit by a car. Well, Hebrews 11. <clears throat> well, I had the right book. <laughs> this is the most picky bunch of people. You always get leaders. I just hate doing leaders. I'd rather do lay people. <laughs> They're so critical. But um, in Hebrews 11... There's a choice that's made here that every young person has to make. And I remember when my son became 13, I thought he'd need a little refresher course on sin. And I said something to Richard that he just couldn't understand. And I said, Richard, uh, I want you to know something. Richard, I want you to know that Dad knows that sin is fun. And he said, oh, Dad. I said, Richard, it is. I said, don't ever let anybody tell you that sin isn't fun, because it is. And the Bible said that sin is fun. If it wasn't fun, people wouldn't do it. And don't ever try to sell the kids an idea that sin isn't fun, because they're going to find out it is, and they're going to reject everything else you told them. Moses said sin was fun in... Uh, that's kind of a Logan translation, but that's what he said. Hebrews 11. In verse 24, it says, By faith, <clears throat> Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Do you realize what he was giving up? He was giving up the most powerful position in the known world at that time. Do you know that they worshipped the Pharaoh's? And Moses could have been worshipped as God. There would not have been one desire that he ever would have wanted that could not have been granted. He would have had all of the 
you know, the largest army in the world at his disposal. And he had the wealth of one of the largest treasuries of wealth of any time would have been his. Now, why did Moses, you know, why did he refuse to, to assume all of this that was his, and what did he choose in its place? What was the choice? Choosing rather what? To suffer. That's quite a choice. You know, what do you want to be? Ronald Reagan or suffer? Ronald Reagan, isn't he? I don't want to suffer. You know, who wants to suffer? Now, why did he choose to suffer? It wasn't because he had some moral struggles, you know, and needed psychiatric help or something. You know, and only everybody tell you that. Moses had some real troubles, you know. Anybody that would choose this obviously had some problems. No. He chose rather to suffer affliction with God's people than to enjoy what? The pleasures of sin. See, Moses knew that sin was pleasurable. Now, why did he make that choice? Have you ever gone browsing in a jewelry store? You know the most frustrating thing in browsing in a jewelry store is the price tags are turned which way? Upside down. You know, and you, you do this bit. Can I help you? No. <laughs> You're trying to figure, how much is this? You know what they want to do? And I don't care where the, if the jewelry store is here or in Nebraska or in Kansas City, they all do the same thing. They all you know, they go to a, a seminar and they teach them the same tricks. But they, they want you to hold the thing in your hand to look at the glitter and then turn the price tag over. Remember one time we were indulgence. That's where we do all our fancy shopping. And um, this guy looked for a ring, and they gave her this ring, and he turned the price, it was a man's ring, and he turned it over, and the price tag, and the woman says, well, you know, it's only $1,000. The guy says, $1,000? You know, he's not ready to drop this thing. You know, it's only going to be $1,000 for a man's ring, and that was, you know, a few years ago. And so I don't know what it's going for today. But, you know, and he said, $1,000? You know, and if they'd have said, well, it's $1,000, never mind. But they want him to look at it. And that's what Satan does, doesn't he? He wants us to look at it. Moses looked at sin, and boy, it glittered. But he turned the price tag over. You know what he said? It's not worth it. It's not worth it. It's going to cost me too much. And see, this is what you've got to get through to kids. Sin is not worth it. Don't tell them sin's not fun. It's not worth the price. The pleasures of sin for a season because the price was so high. He esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches, the reproaches of identifying with God's people, greater riches than all of what? The treasures in Egypt. For he had respect unto what? The recompense of the reward. What did Moses do? He looked at the long range consequences of sin and the long-range benefits of identifying with God's people. And Moses said, I'll identify with God's people. Oh, it may cost me something now, but the benefits are eternal. It revealed his value system. See, kids are living for what? The now and paying consequences the rest of their life. I just wish you could see the Christian kids in college weeping over their high school past, wishing they had didn't have one. Some of these kids at 18 and 19 
have passed that you will not believe. I was teaching spiritual dating in one of the junior high schools in Kansas City. A girl came up to me. She was 14. She didn't even look 14. She came up to me and she said, Mr. Logan, I can't tell you how much I appreciate. You know, here's this little girl. This little girl. Kind of little chubby little girl. So I can't tell you how much I appreciate your teaching on spiritual dating. I thought, this is a 14-year-old girl. She doesn't have to be dating anyway. And she said, Mr. Logan, I want you to know that I was a prostitute for two years. And I know what you're saying. And I thought, what is a 14? What does she know? And I said, do you mean you've been immoral with your boyfriend? She said, no, I worked the streets in Kansas City for two years. I didn't believe her. And I said, are you sure? <laughs> Mr. Logan, I know what I've done. You know, I thought, you know how, you know, the junior high girls, you know, they anything for attention. I mean, she just didn't look like a prostitute. So, and I've, you see them all over Kansas City, you know, and so you know what they look like. This girl did not look like a prostitute, but children come high-priced in Kansas City. There's a lot of men that like these young girls. So a 10, 11, 12-year-old girl comes at a premium price. So I asked the Christian school teacher, I said, was that girl really a prostitute? She said, oh, yes, Mr. Logan, she was. So the next day I went to that girl and I said, honey, I want to tell you something. God has done a marvelous work in your life. Said, what do you mean? I said, he's erased the sin from your countenance. And I said, you don't look like one. and You don't have to live like one again. She said, Mr. Logan, I wouldn't. She said, I would not even let a boy touch me. And this girl, all the struggle she had, her mother just recently committed suicide. Can you imagine what this girl's going to go through? Two years of prostitute from 12, no, from 11 to 13. Then she gets saved. And then about a year and a half afterwards, her mother kills herself. And now she has no family. And then make her a ward of the court and all that stuff. Isn't that terrible? I'll tell you, you just don't know. And we have girls coming to Calvary that were prostitutes. We have kids coming to Calvary that were drug addicts. Kids that have scars on their lives you can't believe at 18. And kids that have done stuff, their folks have no idea. One mother called crying. She said, would you talk to my teenage daughter? She's having uh, uh, an affair with a pastor's son. And she was uh, going to a Christian high school in the area. And I said, sure, bring her in. So this girl came in and she sat down and said, Mr. Logan, I don't know what to do. I really don't know what to do. So we told my dad and all this stuff and everything. The pastor doesn't want his son to marry me and, and all this. And we were sitting there talking. Now the scripture says that if a fellow has intercourse with a girl that's a virgin, he's to marry her. And he's to go and talk to the girl's father. So that's the exact principles we follow at Calvary. If a fellow is immoral with a girl, if he is, he is to go to that girl's father and tell her what he's done. And let me tell you, that puts the fear of the Lord in kids in these dating, because they don't want to go to any girl's father, especially any girl's father that's a pastor or a missionary, and tell her dad what he's done to her. And then the dad decides whether to get married or not. It's the girl's father's decision, not the college's decision, not the pastor's decision, not the church's decision, but the father of the girl's decision. And they went to the girl's father, but the pastor wasn't sure he wanted his son to marry. So I asked this girl a question. The Spirit of God just moved to my heart, and I said, and here she was, 16, 17. I said, um, was this the first time you were immoral? And the girl said, no. And the mother nearly fell off the chair. The mother said, well, you never told me that. She said, well, Mom, I, I didn't want to tell you. But she said, you didn't know this, but when I was going to junior high school, when this girl was 13, 14, and 15, she would go down the stairs at night very quietly and go out the sliding glass doors and party and dope and sex during the night, and then come back in in the morning and slide the doors, lock it, go upstairs, and go back to bed. 
We know of other girls that climbed out the windows. Folks didn't know they were gone. And they were out partying at night and climbing into the windows. Folks didn't even know. You have no idea what's going on. Terrible, terrible things are going on today. And these kids have got to see this. And they've got to come to make the same decision Moses made. Now, what do kids have to see to choose as Moses chose? Turn to Proverbs chapter 1. I did not bring my notes. I'm doing all this out of my head on, on this. And I just felt that we needed to go over this material, probably not so much for you as for those that you're going to be working with or talking with. We need to go back to our very first night. We said that we needed to make what the goal of every believer? What should be the goal of every Christian? Proverbs 4, 7. Wisdom. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. With all I get in, get what? Understanding. What's un wisdom is being able to see as God sees. Understanding has to do with what? My response to a situation. But there's another truth that most people don't even know what the word means. And what's the word? Reproofs. What are reproofs? Well, the scripture says, and you ought to do a study in reproofs, that the reproofs of life are the teaching aid of wisdom. Now, what are the reproofs of life? They are the reproofs that come in life when I violate God's perspective. And there are predictable reproofs. And we would teach this in the college so our kids could be good counselors. And if you violate certain things down here, there's certain reproofs up here. When you see these reproofs, you know what they've done wrong. You know, and you go down. And you can go right down to that particular reproof. God says certain reproofs are predictable. Young people who have a bad relationship with their parents, we already talked about this a couple of nights ago, what's going to happen? Teenagers whose attitudes are wrong to their parents, what's going to happen? Things will not go well in their life. God promises that. So when you see a teenager and things are going wrong in their life, don't get caught up with what's going wrong. Just know that if it's going wrong, they've got problems with their folks. Kids, a couple that comes in for counseling and they say, you know, we're having struggles in our marriage. And I say, well, are you struggling in the physical aspect of marriage? Yes. You know what? Why most couples struggle in making the physical adjustments in marriage? Because they lowered their standards when they were dating. And I asked the question I asked, did you lower your standards when you were dating? They said yes. And they never, the fellow never asked the girl's forgiveness, or the girl never asked the fellow's forgiveness, and that's between them, and they just, they just don't uh, adjust in the physical aspect of marriage, as God intended. And there's just all kinds of predictable things. Financial problems in marriage so often can be traced to certain things. And you just go right down. These are reproofs. Uh, so we want to see now, so there's the reproofs that come when I violate scripture. There's reproofs of all kinds of things. There's a reproof of conscience. What's the reproof of conscience called? G-U-I-L-T. Change your mind. You maybe think that's right. She hasn't changed her mind. She stole I mean. And you, you struggle with that all your marriage life. And you know the worst in-law problem there is? It's not the husband and his wife's mother. You tell jokes about that, that's funny. What's not funny? The husband's mother and the wife. That's not funny at all. They don't even tell jokes about it. No one even laughs. That's pathetic. And when the bride, mother-in-law, dislikes her, 
that girl in for many a heartache for many a year. Unless they go and ask forgiveness and make things right about that marriage. So let's go now to these reproofs. What is a perfect purpose of a reproof? It's God's way of calling, to me, call, calling my attention that I have violated his principles for living. And what is a reproof supposed to do? I'm supposed to turn around. I'm going one way, and God wants to turn me around. So he taps me on the shoulder. And he says, turn you at my reproof. And what happens if I won't turn around? We're going to find out. But if God is talking to you, and you're willing to turn around, God says, there's two things I'll do in your life if you'll turn around. Behold, what? I will pour out, what? My spirit unto you, and I will make known my words unto you. Two things. I'll fill you with my spirit, and what? I'll show you what to do. I will reveal truth to you if you will turn around. Now let's look. Because I've called, and ye refused. And I have here verses by the groves written all over here on reproof small over the scripture. God said, I have reproved you. I've called, and what did you say? Leave me alone. God, leave me alone. Take your hand off my life. I'll do my own thing. You know, just leave me alone. And there are people saying that today. God, you just leave me alone. I want to do what I want to do. You leave me alone. Because I, got, I called and you refused, I stretched out my hand and you shoved it away. And you have set it not all of my counsel and you would not have any of my reproof. Then, this is God says what's going to happen. I, God, will laugh at your calamity. God said, I will laugh when the bottom drops out. And it will drop out. God said, I will mock when your fear cometh. What do you fear the most? Because it will come. Do you fear that your folks will find out? Do you fear you will get caught? I have a testimony written by one of our students. This boy, after sitting and hearing this, came to see me. Came to my office, Mr. Logan, I've got to talk to you. He says, I have got terrible problems. I was never going to come in and tell you. I said, there's one person I'm never going to go see is Mr. Logan. And two, if I ever go see him, I'm not going to tell him. <laughs> I just don't want him to know about me. But he said, Mr. Logan, I'm going to tell you plain and simple, I'm a thief. I said, are you really? He said, you have no idea. Father, very outstanding Christian leader. He says, I'm a thief. A thief through and through. I said, why don't you go home? I gave him a project. You go home and you write down all that you can remember that you've stolen and how much money. So this kid went home. He came back. He said, Mr. Logan, he's 17 or 18. Okay, I'm ready. I said, how much have you stolen? He said, well, I've never stolen anything big. I've never stolen a car or a color TV or anything like that. But he says, as close as I can figure, it's $5,000. So I started stealing that I can remember way back in grammar school, but I can only start keeping track in, in junior high. He said, Mr. Logan, I can't walk into a store and I can tell you immediately the security of that store. So I can see where the mirrors are. I can pick out who the police are. I got the whole thing. 
He said, I just do it just immediately when I walk to the store. I, said, I can steal from the store. I can steal from the back there if I go back there. You know, I know where the blind spots are. I know where I can get the stuff. And um, I said, were you purpose in your heart to pay back all that money? He said, yes, but the hardest thing is the Bible camp I work at. They made me a director this year, and I've been stealing money from there for years. He says, oh, and guess what almost kept him from getting squared away in his life? Point number one. What's that one? Pride. Just about killed him. But he went back and he told these people he had stolen and he was going to pay it back and he owed him this money. Plus he figured interest on that money for all these places, which came out to like $9,000 or something. And he began to pay these off. And he says, ah, and he prayed and thanked God and he said, I'm free. I said, no, you're not. What do you mean? I said, you're not free. I said, you know when you're, you know you're going to be free? is when you're tempted to steal and you walk away. But I said, until Satan brings the big one, brother, you're not free. He said, oh, I know I am. And I said, well, I know you're not. I said, listen, I've dealt with too much of this. You just better mark my word. He that thinketh he stand, take heed, because, brother, you're going to fall flat in your face. He said, okay, Mr. Logan, but I don't think I'll ever steal again. And I said, no, no problem, no problem. You, I would love to read his testimony. It's awfully long. It came Christmas time. And this fellow needed to go to Crown Center. And at Crown Center, he was going to the bookstore to get a certain book that's the only place they had it. He parked his car in the Crown Center parking lot. Now, what do you suppose a thief fears the most? Getting caught. Well, he, instead of walking down, you know how these parking lots, you go like this to get up in them? Instead of walking down the stairs, guess how he walked down? Through this way. And as he was walking through, he noticed the cars that had presents in them that weren't locked. Now, you baby would never notice that, but he did. And when he came downstairs and walked by this Lincoln, there was a mink coat in the back seat, full length, unlocked. And he knew a place where he could turn it in and get at least $1,500 for it. He went to the bookstore. He came back. The Lincoln was still there. Well, Satan had been doing a number in his head, you know. <laughs> and he walked by the car, and he turned around, and he walked back by the car, and then he practiced some principles I'm going to show you at the end tonight. And he turned around, so I'm not going to do it, and walked away. And he walked up to get in his car, and he was surrounded by security. He said, we've been watching you. Open your trunk. And he opened his trunk. He said, shake him like a leaf. Shake him like a leaf. <laughs> and they opened the car and they searched him and they searched everything. We've been watching you walking these cars. He said, Mr. Logan, it's the first time in my life I have ever been stopped and I didn't have anything. He said, he never, you know, he never been stopped before. He said, Mr. Logan, if I would have had that coat, it'd have been grand larceny. Instead of being in this class after Christmas vacation, I'd have been in jail. And he was willing to share that with the class. I mean, after, you know, and the kids are saying, wow. And he said, you better listen to what he's saying about reproofs because I know now that he's saying the truth. And let me tell you, the very thing you fear will happen if you don't turn when God is dealing with you. When your fear cometh as desolation, that is what is so tragic. What's desolation? That's all alone. I wish that I had a hidden camera in my office and I had 
movies, silent movies, of the countenances of people that sat in my office pouring out their stories in utter bankruptcy. And just let you see their faces and you could read a story of desolation, of fear. What am I going to do? What is going to happen to my life? How can I tell my dad? What will my wife say? What will my husband do when he finds out? How can I tell my boss? Do I really have to call the, the uh, internal revenue and let them know that I've been embezzling? You know, how am I going to do this? Or they, they've audited the books, Mr. Logan, and they know now. What am I going to do? I'm talking about Christian people sitting there in utter. If you could just see, that would be enough to turn anybody off from sin because they're starting to pay for it now. When your fear cometh as desolation and your destruction comes as a whirlwind, before we move to Broken Bull, seven tornadoes went through Grand Island. You should go down and look where the Safeway store once was, where houses used to be, motels that are gone, big cement motels, gone. Airplanes were inside of you know, a hamburger stand. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. God says, I will bring tornadoes to your life. You look at what a tornado is. He says, exactly what's going to happen to you. You are going to be torn apart when what? Distress and anguish shall come upon you. I'll share another story with you. There are a number of our students that have been involved in murders. Now, I know that Dr. Madison doesn't particularly like me telling these stories, but they are so real, and I was there, and I helped these kids with these things, and they had no idea that their sin would come to this. One minister's son that was going to Calvary went to Tennessee Temple. Tennessee Temple said, listen, kid, you are so bad. Would you leave? He said, I'd be glad to get out of the school. And so he left and became a fireman. And he was doing drugs and women and wine and whatever he wanted to do. And one day he was in a building and the whole thing fell down on fire. And he kind of fell all around him. And he's standing there in this building. I mean, standing where a building was and it's all laying down and he's still standing up. And he says, God, you got my attention. I just surrender. <laughs> you know, he surrendered. He said, wow. I mean, he had been through all kinds of wrecks and all kinds of things. And finally, this building falling down, he says, you know, the next time one of these buildings falls down, I've had it. So he surrendered to the Lord and came back to Calvary. He surrendered everything but all. He surrendered a lot, but not all. So he came to Calvary. Well, Calvary is not as bad as Tennessee Temple, but it's not, you know, it's, it's no picnic either there. And they have a lot of rules and regulations, and he struggled with those same things inwardly. You know, here I am, 27 years old, and they're telling me I have to be in at 10.30. And I was staying out all night, or, you know, three days at a time, and didn't answer anybody. Why do I have to, you know, Mickey Mouse stuff? And so he began to resent some of these rules. You know, can't listen to any kind of music you want to, and... You know, what, I want to show him my hairy chest. Button up, brother. We don't want to see the hairs in your chest, you know. <laughs> he just struggled with those things. But, and these resentments began to build in his life. And he, and he began to struggle a lot with rebellion. But it was, before it was open rebellion, now it was just quiet rebellion. Well, he went home to visit his brother. It was his birthday. And his dad's a tremendous man. And he went to visit the family, and they, he decided with an unsafe friend to take his brother roller skating in another town because there's no roller rink in that town. It was his brother's birthday. He said, I don't want to go. He said, get in the pickup. We're taking you anyway. So they threw the kid to the pickup and we're going to take him roller skating on his birthday. 
And as they were driving to the roller rink in this town, they drove by the discotheque where this kid used to hang out, the Calvary student. So he wheeled it to pick up into the discotheque. He said, I'm going to go in and see my friend. So his brother, who was backslidden at the time, said, I'm not going in there. The Calvary student went in, and it wasn't to pass out threat. The first thing he did was to get a beer. So he got a beer, one of our own students, our dear old students, walking around this joint with a dance floor, drinking beer. Well, his buddy went in, too, and was sitting at the bar. Well, this kid that from Calvary loves to fight. You know, he liked to prove that he's strong, and he was strong. He really is real muscular and all this stuff. So he's drinking a beer and looking through the dance floor, and there is his buddy talking to a girl at the bar. And some guy walks over, and he can see a commotion going between his buddy, unsaved buddy, and this fellow. And he couldn't miss the fun, so he walked over there. He said, hey, what's going on here? You messing, with, messing up with my buddy? The guy said, well, he's messing with my girl. He says, you leave my buddy alone. The guy said, well, you tell your buddy to leave my girl alone. And he says, and, the, and this guy shoved him. The guy from Cali put his beer down, and he shoved this guy. And he shoved the kid from Calvary, and the guy from Calvary gave him a shove, and he fell on the dance floor, and when he fell, he laid flat on the floor, reached in his boot, and pulled out a gun, and pointed at the kid at Calvary, and pulled the trigger, and nothing happened. He pulled the trigger again, and nothing happened, and he moved the gun and pulled the trigger, and shot his buddy to death. He just fell at his feet, bleeding on the dance floor. He put the gun back on the kid from Calvary. He said, I couldn't do anything. I just stood there, Mr. Logan. He pulled the trigger again, and nothing happened. And this guy began to shoot the people on his dance floor. And they were screaming and knocking over tables and this whole thing. I wish I had a camera of this fellow's countenance as he was telling me his story. Tears streaming down his face. He said, Mr. Logan, God's been trying to talk to me. I know he did, but I wasn't listening. He said, I tell God, leave me alone. I'm not as bad as I used to be. He said, Mr. Logan, the hardest thing was to stand at the grave of my unsaved buddy knowing he was in hell. And I was his Christian friend that took him to the bar. He said, Mr. Logan, when I go to sleep at night, guess what I dream about? This guy shooting these people in this dance hall because of me. People are in a Christless eternity because of me. He said, Mr. Logan, I don't know if I can ever handle that. And I could tell you story after story just as bad as that. And, I, and this kid said, wherever you teach high school kids, Mr. Logan, tell them my story. Tell them, don't. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. This kid finally dropped out of school. He couldn't handle it. Did God forgive him? Did he forgive him? Sure he did. But he will never, what? Forgive one summer I was sitting in my office, a kid came in, he said, Mr. Logan, you don't know me, can I talk to you? And I said, sure. He said, I'm from a certain Bible school in another state. I said, what brings you here? He said, well, I was hoping you wouldn't ask me. But he said, I, I was hoping that you could just pray with me and, and help me. I hear you help kids. I said, sure. I said, you want to tell me your problem? He says, well, I guess I can trust you. He said, Mr. Logan, I was loose morally at this Bible school. And I picked up a disease. I don't know what it is, but I've come to Kansas City because they have excellent venereal disease centers here, and I'm going to find out what it is and get treated. Would you pray for me? I am so sorry for what I've done. And I said, sure. So I prayed for him. I said, come back, will you? School's not in. Just come back and let me know how things went. 
He said, I'll do that, I promise. So he was gone, and one day this kid came in. And I'm telling you, he was lower than a, than a worm. Just flopped in the chair, and I said, what's wrong? Oh, Mr. Logan said, it's terrible. I said, what's wrong? He said, well, I went there, and they told me I had, and he told me what it was, and I never heard of it, and I had been in medical work, but there's so many new diseases now that, that you don't even know what they are, you know, brand XY and all this stuff. He says, you know, Mr. Logan, they told me this. They've arrested it. But they told me that I'll give it to the girl I marry and my children will be born with it. Do you think he regrets being immoral? But he'll pay for it as long as he lives. One of the girls in the school came in. I like this girl very much. It breaks me up. She was a transfer student from another Bible school. She came in and she sat down and she just started crying. She cried and she cried and she cried. And this girl had so much potential. I said, what? Ah. And you can tell, you know, between breaking up with a boyfriend and a real cry. And this was a real cry. She said, Mr. Logan, it's so terrible. I, you're the only person I can talk to. I said, well, honey, tell me what's wrong. So Mr. Logan, there's a fellow sitting out in front of the school in the car. I pleaded with him to come and talk to you, but he won't. He says, it's none of your business. He said, Mr. Logan, you're the only person I know I can talk to. He says, I'm pregnant by this fellow I met in one of the local churches. And we're getting married tomorrow. And I don't love him. Pray for me, Mr. Logan. I've ruined my life. I have letters from that girl. She went on to another Bible school, and she's graduating. And you should, I read her letters to the students at the school, not reading her name, pleading with the girls to have standards because of the heartache that she has in this marriage. She already has. Now, this is a few of these stories, but do you get the picture? Every one of these kids asked God to forgive them. Did God forgive them? Yes. But they're still paying now look at this. Let's go back to the scriptures. When fear cometh as desolation, your destruction comes as a whirlwind, and distress and anguish come upon you, then shall they call upon me. And God said what? I will not what? Answer. They shall seek me early, but what? They won't find me. He's talking about his own people here. And you say, why? Now they're crying out to God. What happened in verse 23? God says, call out to me. They said, leave me alone. God says, I just answered your prayers. Why are they calling out to God? Pseudo-repentance. God, straighten out my mess and I'll follow you forever. You know what pseudo-repentance is? A friend of mine uses this illustration, beautiful illustration. The parents tell this young teenager, or young boy, don't play in the street. And the kid says, Dad, don't you tell me what to do. And he runs out the door, and he slams the door, and he runs out between two cars, and he gets hit by a car. The folks go see him in the hospital, and the kid's laying there, and he said, Dad, I promise I won't break my leg again. That's what they're doing. I promise I won't get pregnant again. 
You see? You know what the thing is? I'm sorry over the consequences, God. But I'm not sorry over the sin. And what is the root of sin? Pride. And what is the root of pride? Doing what? What I want to do. Not doing what God wants me to do. And if a person's repentance does not include forgive me for running my own life, it's not a genuine repentance. It's just I'm sorry. For they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. What's the fear of the Lord? A conscious awareness of God's presence. That's why they're in a mess. They put God out of their thoughts. They would have had none of my counsel and they despised all of my reproofs. Look at verse 31. Therefore, they shall what? Eat of the fruit of their own way. You know how God brought this home to me? I decided we had a super yard in Kansas City. Beautiful yard. I just love working in the yard. It's my way of getting away from all these hairy stories. You know, I'd have nine or ten people a day spilling out the most horrid stories you ever heard of. And I'd go home and weed my garden and plant it and had a beautiful fruit orchard and did all this stuff to get this stuff out of my head. I said, God, wash my head of all the filth I heard today. You know, clean it up and let me think on you and just get this stuff out of my life because this stuff can be depressing. I mean, after my first three months at the college, I was going to quit. I said, Lord, I can't handle this. Three months of this stuff is enough to put anybody in a booby hatch. I just can't handle this, you know. But then there came a summer and I said, God, teach me how to roll this stuff when I shut the door to leave all this garbage in here and you clean it out in the morning and I come in and have it all sprayed out and I'll come in and start the new day and we'll dump a bunch of garbage and let me leave again. So I decided I'd plant different things. And I planted two different things in our yard that usually don't grow in Kansas City. Brussels sprouts and broccoli. And guess what happened? They grew. And guess what I had to do? Eat them. I hate them. <laughs> My wife likes them. But I never knew how they grew before, but now I know I'll never plant them again. But you know there's a principle, a divine principle that's repeated in Galatians. What you sow, you reap. And that's wonderful. That is a very wonderful principle because behind my house, I planted 150 strawberry plants. Now, if I planted 150 strawberry plants and looked under, looked under the strawberries and saw broccoli, I would die. <laughs> you know. But you know, every year, guess what we got off those plants? Strawberries. That's wonderful. We planted radishes. You know the hardest thing about planting carrots? I was always afraid I'd plant the seeds upside down and they'd grow backwards. <laughs> But you know, it's so neat. When you plant the stuff, you're gonna, you know what's going to come up. It's not a surprise. And you find out, I wonder what's going to grow. I plant radishes, I always have radishes. Isn't that wonderful? But when you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap what? Corruption. And if you don't, the scripture's not true. And I happen to know it's true. And that's what he's saying here. What you sow, you're going to reap. And you know what's worse than reaping it? You've got to eat it. You're going to eat it. And how do you eat it? So you're filled with your own devices. You don't need a little of it. You eat a whole lot of it. You know, and the cook read this. She doesn't throw anything away down there. You, you mark my words, tomorrow the chicken soup could be chocolate floating in it. <laughs> I 
I mean, I know this gal is really shrewd. The other day we had a, I know, you know, you, you catch, catch your tricks. The other day we had a salad bar. Well, what you didn't put on your salad yesterday, she put in the chop suey today. Did you notice the bean spots from the chop suey today? You check, you check her out, see how she does it. And she's tighter than I don't know what. That's why they got her cooking down there. She didn't throw anything away. I'm just waiting for those eggshells. <laughs> but it's true. We can laugh. It's not funny, is it? That's really not funny. Let me tell you, when you start eating this stuff, what did the children of Israel eat? They ate the meat to what? It was running out their noses. They were vomiting it up. God said, you want meat? Okay, you eat it. I want you to eat it till you're sick of it. God says, you want to be in sin? I want you to get so sick of this that you'll never want to eat it again. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them, and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. And if we put a period there, that would be the most tragic portion of Scripture in all the Bible. But God always gives hope, doesn't he? He's a God of hope. And what's the next verse? But. Isn't that wonderful? Aren't you glad for the buts, the wherefores, and the therefores? But whoso hearkeneth unto me. You know what hearkeneth is? It's to hear what? With doing. Who will listen with doing unto me shall what? Dwell what? Safely and shall be quieted from what? The fear of evil. Isn't that tremendous? You know, I don't know what you're doing. But if you're doing things that are wrong, God says, you know, if you turn to me right now, when I'm speaking to your heart, you won't reap it. If you turn now. And you won't have to be afraid of the fear of the consequences of your sin because I'll stop them right now. But if you refuse to listen to me, your destruction is going to come and your desolation. And you will go through this thing all alone. You know, I think that's worse than any part of it is the loneliness that these people feel in it. And you know you can't somehow get in with them. I remember the first time they performed an abortion in Tacoma, Washington. Just by accident, we walked to visit a lady in our church. That wasn't an accident. That broke her leg. But the first abortion case was in the next bed. And it was a 17-year-old girlfriend. A girl. And she was crying. She was going to be the first abortion performed. You know, the folks didn't even know about it. She was in over the weekend, you know, and not.